Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, reflect on this revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, hear this epiphany and into this coming epiphany season. Lord, will you use your word to reveal that truth to us, to speak that truth into our lives, Lord, but, but not only that. Father, would you not only, through your word, convict our minds, but would you convict our hearts as well? Give us the courage not just to see the truth and to know the truth, to encounter the truth, Lord, but to respond to it in a way that brings honor and glory. That's in keeping with what we know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's some encouraging news uh, for us today from our readings, uh, not just in Isaiah, but in our gospel reading from Matthew. It's this. God has had a plan for you all along. And that plan is that you would be with him, right? That you would be with him. And that with you, he will beautify his beautiful house, as Isaiah records. And you are to be with him and that through you being with him, his house is actually made all the more better, all the more beautiful. Isn't that an incredible thing to hear? When we hear something like that for the first time, it it can raise in us uh, a question, could that actually be true? Is that actually the case? It's not just the first time that we encounter uh, this statement from from God, but later on when, when some misfortune befalls us, that question might actually come back up to the forefront. We might be forced to wrestle with it. Again, could it possibly be true that I am so adored by another, by my God, that, that my very presence with him makes a good thing better, a great thing greater, a beautiful thing even more beautiful. How can that be true given my current circumstances? Whatever it is that, that might have happened, that I might be wrestling with at the time. Well, John Stott, uh, he's an Englishman, an, an Anglican pastor, a great uh, theologian. In one of his books, he shares the story of a, of a young man who came to see him uh, after having finished school and then begun his professional career in London. And this young man had given up going to church because he felt like a hypocrite every time that he did go. He Specifically, when he was reciting the Nicene Creed, That part of the service where we state specifically that which we as Christians claim to be uh, true, claim to believe to be true about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This young man, he just simply didn't believe it anymore. And so he felt like a hypocrite having to recite those words in church. And so he came to start to explain this, this intellectual problem of belief that had caused him to give up going to church. And as Stott tells the story, uh, he considers uh, what this young man says. And then he poses a question to that young man. He says, if I were to answer your problems to your complete 
intellectual satisfaction, would you be willing to change the way that you lived? And Stott says that that young man simply smiled and blushed because he knew that he wouldn't. You see, this is the problem that many people struggle with when they consider Christianity. An honest search for truth requires, it necessitates, that were that truth to actually be found, then we would be bound to live by it. Stott says, the Christian message has a moral challenge. It's not just about intellectual belief. That is tied to a moral responsibility. So Stott says, we cannot fix God at the end of a telescope or a microscope and say, how interesting. God is far from being merely interesting. He is deeply upsetting. Could it possibly be true that God has a plan for you all along, that you would be with him and your presence with him would add to his splendor, that it would beautify his beautiful house? Well, as we look at Isaiah today, I hope to provide a little bit of food for thought regarding that intellectual question. But we have to keep in mind that young man from London, right? If we're willing to entertain the idea intellectually that that this is true, that it could possibly be true, then we also must be willing to let that truth shape our lives. We have to recognize the, the required response to live by that truth, were it to be found to be true. And so to seek the truth honestly requires a willingness to live by what we find. And so that is my, my hope of your posture as we approach Scripture today. It's my posture as I approach Scripture today. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 60, uh, the first uh, nine verses or so. <clears throat> Now today, uh, our church is celebrating Epiphany, and Epiphany is that wonderful realization of God that he has come in the flesh, uh, this manifestation of God that we we know is found in Jesus Christ himself, that little child who was born of humble origins. And you're probably thinking that we should be talking about that endearing story from Matthew's gospel, uh, which we just read, where where the wise men from the east come to bring these uh, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and to worship this young Christ child, Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's what Epiphany is all about, right? Shouldn't we be there? Shouldn't we be talking about that? Well, we're going to. That's, that's what we're going to be talking about. But we're going to look at it through this uh, story in Isaiah, through this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60. So if you want to follow along, uh, I encourage you to turn there, however you can get to see the scriptures in Isaiah chapter 60. Now the book of Isaiah unfolds in three distinct historical settings. And so by the time that we get to chapter 60, we've come to the third setting of Isaiah's book, and a lot has already happened. Israel has been made into this great nation, but their sinfulness, and that primarily of their leaders and their kings, has caused that nation to be divided into two. And then their sinfulness continues despite God's warning through the prophets, Isaiah being one of them. And so the northern kingdom is overrun and its people are scattered. Then the same fate befalls the southern kingdom and the people of God are exiled from their land. They're cast out from the land that had been promised to them, that had been given to them, that they had been in charge of 
for years and years. And they're driven away and they're forced out. They're forced to live as foreigners in a foreign land. So all of this has happened leading up to uh, this prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 60. But God promises that there will come a time after exile. And that is the setting for our passage today. It's in the future for Isaiah, but it's not uh, the prediction of a, of a future historical event as much as it is in a, a theological depiction of the culmination of God's plan. It does, it does speak to the historical return of the exiles to the city of Jerusalem. But as you read it, as you will see, there is much more to it than just that. Right? There is a timelessness to it. There's an even greater thing here that God is planning and that Isaiah is describing. Look at verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. These verses describe a changing of the winds, right? The glory of the Lord that led the people of God out of captivity in Egypt, that pillar of smoke by day, the fire by night, covered them and it protected them and it led them. That glory has come back, has come back to his chosen people, Israel. And it has going to have an effect on the whole world as we see in the following verses. Look at verse 3. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. And this is a a very interesting point that's being made here. It's not just that the four nations are coming, but that they are bringing with them children of Israel. The four nations come, but they... They come not as foreigners. They see the light over the people of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and they they see that their place is actually with it. All along they thought they belonged over there, but, but lo and behold, they're actually a part of something wonderful and beautiful over here. Continuing with verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. You see, they are coming as a part of us, Israel is informed. They are coming, and they are bringing all of their riches and all of their abundance with them as an offering and as a, as a tribute to build up this beautiful thing that is happening in Jerusalem with the glory of God now coming to rest there. And so verses 1 through 5 depict this beautiful and captivating image that, that teases our hearts even now as we read it. It entices us to hope. Could this really be true? Could this beautiful picture actually be God's glorious plan? But it's in the details of verses 6 through 9 that things really get interesting. First, I want you to see verse 6 makes three specific references to particular places. And then verses 7 through 9 also makes three specific references to particular places. Now, now why are these details included? 
Well, let me read from Genesis chapter 25. It'll shed a little light on these specific names that are mentioned. Now, at this point in Genesis, a lot has happened in Abraham's life. God has called him away from everything he knew, promised him a great land in generations upon generations of descendants. The problem is that it didn't happen all that quickly, right? Some mistakes were made, uh, we'll say. Abraham fathered Ishmael with his concubine Hagar, thinking that might speed up the process. And God said, no, 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 that's not how this is, that's not how this is going to happen. And eventually Sarah did give, Sarah, uh, which is Abraham's wife, she did, did give birth to their son Isaac. Isaac was God's uh, chosen son to make this generational promise come true. And then after Sarah died, Abraham took another wife and she gave birth to other children. That's actually where we pick up the story in Genesis 25. I'm only going to read uh, what's relevant to our reading in Isaiah so that we can clearly see that connection of what's going on between uh, these two stories. So this comes from Genesis chapter 25, but, but listen to the names that are mentioned here. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Jokshan and da, 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 Midian. And Jokshan fathered da, 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 Sheba. And among the sons of Midian was, dun da da, Ephah. And all these were the children of Keturah, the wife of Abraham. Now, isn't that interesting? Read verse 6 from Isaiah. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Isn't that interesting? Midian and Sheba and Ephah are all children of Abraham. And they are all now, as Isaiah records, flocking to the glory of God as revealed in Israel. Midian, Sheba, Ephah are all children of Abraham that were sent away and are now being called back. Now look at Isaiah verse 7 because it doesn't just end there. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Isaiah records. Again, we jump back to the story of Abraham in Genesis 25 to find the origin of these names. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. Again, I'm reading only the relevant names here. The names of the sons of, of the sons of Ishmael are this: Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar. Do you see what Isaiah is referencing here? Do you, do you see the connection here? These that the Lord is now promising to gather up that Isaiah is prophesying prophesying will be gathered together they all trace their roots back to Abraham so the implication is that God has worked out salvation through one son Isaac that salvation is not to be reserved simply for the descendants of Isaac but the glory of God smells like home to all of the children 
of Abraham and all of their descendants. Now, Isaiah simply says that these people flock to Jerusalem from afar. But do we know where these uh, nations actually are? And do we know what direction then they come from? Again, we can return to Genesis chapter 25. Abraham had these sons by other means, but Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And so here we can make an epiphany connection, right? Abraham sends his sons away from Isaac, the promised child, and he sends those sons to the east country, to the east. Isaiah says that the descendants of those sons are going to come back from the east when the glory of God returns to Israel. And we know from our gospel reading in Matthew that the wise men come from the east to find Jesus. And so the implication is that in Jesus, we see again the glory of God returning to his promised people. In Jesus, we see the the foreshadowed uh, uh, reunion of God and his people that Isaiah is describing in chapter 60. See, what, what happens in Matthew 2 is foretold by Isaiah, and it can be traced back to God's very promise to Abraham. There's There's also another epiphany connection that you might have picked up on as well as we read through these verses. What did those from the east in Isaiah bring as gifts? Look at verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. What did those from the east bring to Jesus in Matthew's gospel? Opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You see the connection that's being made here, the story that is being traced throughout all of Scripture that God is telling throughout all of history. Matthew 2 is the beginning of the return of God's glory to Israel, which he will use to gather his people together from around the world. And that glory rests upon that little child, upon Jesus himself. And the next time that he's offered myrrh, it will be in a cup that he rejects while he hangs on a cross. God's glory on display for all the world to see. Now, if you're paying attention and and have been able to track all these names and things and connections that I've made, I know there there are a lot of them. There's one that I haven't made yet. It comes in verses 8 and 9 of our reading from Isaiah chapter 60. Uh, It's the name of Tarshish. I don't want to leave it out. Tarshish uh, is different from the other ones. It's actually uh, in the west. We don't exactly know where it is. But we do know that uh, the people of that city are a seafaring people. They, they don't have a, a known cultural connection to the people of Israel. But regardless, wouldn't you know, Isaiah records that they too come on ships with sails that fly like clouds across the sea, returning to a home that they had previously never known. And yet because of what God is doing, bringing his glory to Israel, 
they respond. And they see that home for what it is. And they flock to it. And so we step back from all of this. And we have to ask the question, where, where do I fit in? And the truth is that that depends, right? It depends first on, on whether or not you think that all of this could be true. Could it be true that God never forgot his promise to Abraham, that he would use one son to bless all the others? Could it be true that God was already planning the return of his glory to Israel and to the city of Jerusalem before the city was ever destroyed, before his people were ever cast out of it? Could it be true that God had planned all along to call you and to call me to return to a home that we never knew existed until he revealed it to us? Friends, if we find ourselves convinced that this is in fact true, that it could in fact be true, well, let, let, us, remember, let us remember that young man from London. Because this epiphany, this, this great revelation of truth, it's all for naught if we are unwilling to accept the moral challenge that it presents to us. If we find ourselves convinced that our home is with God, we must be willing to live as if God has made his home with us. We must take him seriously when he says, I will beautify my beautiful house. Amen.